Today was the first day I really felt autumn had arrived. As I was stepping into my train station, I saw leaves on the ground being dragged into the train carts off the bottoms of people's shoes. I saw one person bundled up as if there was an oncoming blizzard, and a person on their left who was rocking a Cali t-shirt with board shorts and flip-flops. Autumn is my favorite season. It's the season that I think most visually represents a change in the atmosphere. Now this can be difficult to adjust to, but the results in the changing foliage can actually prove to be the most beautiful visuals this earth has to offer. Now, much like the change the season represents, our world is currently in political flux, unlike we've seen in decades. Demagoguery has taken control of the U.S., and governments around the world are seeing spikes in fundamentalism, intolerance, and oppressive measures. At the same time, grassroots movements are stronger than they've ever been, at least across the millennial generation. For so long, there was a stagnation, a uh, status quo of sorts, that was far from perfect, but this is a political autumn we're facing now. And while it's not going to be easy, the grassroots and mass activism for progressive change has the power to make this the most beautiful fall in history. Now, uh, I do want to take a moment um, to offer my condolences to everyone across the world who's been affected by tragedies which have rocked our world really over the past few weeks and months to those affected by hurricanes Irma and Jose, to those affected by the earthquakes in Mexico, to those affected by the wildfires in California, and to those affected by gun violence, both in the Vegas shooting and other shootings that occur on a daily basis. We will continue being a support for you however possible. And, you know, actually, uh, recently during the wildfires that scorched parts of California, there was a summer camp, URJ Camp Newman, which was affected, and most of the buildings on the site were completely destroyed. Following that tragedy, uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Sulkin wrote an article for Religious News Service. The article really struck a chord with me. Uh, there's a line in which he writes about the camp. It exists not only in a physical sense, but with its own emotional and spiritual footprint as well. I found that statement to be so resonant for whenever and however tragedy strikes, we go and we support and provide relief however we can. Not just because we are connected to the land, whether it be Puerto Rico, Houston, or Camp Newman in this case, but because these are homes, homes to our sisters and our brothers. This political autumn, we face tragedy everywhere. We look around and so much of it comes in the form of not providing support for our brothers and our sisters, encapsulating both the Jewish value and the loving the stranger, and the American spirit that was built by immigrants. Today, I'm very grateful to be joined by Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer, who is the Director of Education at HIAS. HIAS's organization's tagline is Welcome the Stranger, Support the Refugee. HIAS has been supporting refugee aid and assistance and has been a beacon of refugee advocacy for over 130 years. Rabbi Meyer herself is a graduate of Columbia University, and was ordained as a rabbi at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Rabbi Meyer has a long history as a defender of human rights, interning with rabbis for human rights and being a vocal activist during her time as an assistant rabbi at Congregation Rodef Shalom in New York City. Since 2015, when she joined Hyas as the Director of Education for Community Engagement, Rabbi Meyer has dedicated her time bridging the information gap between Jewish values and history and the contemporary challenges being faced by today's refugee communities. She has been published in The Forward, 
and wrote an essay that is featured in the book Seven Days, Many Voices, Insights into the Biblical Stories of Creation. All right. Uh, Hi, Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Before we get into the questions, uh, I would just love to hear you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with Hyas right now. So I'm Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I have been a New Yorker for almost 16 years now. And I was ordained at HUCJIR in New York, and I have been in the field for about five years. Prior to coming to highest, two and a half years ago, I was a congregational rabbi. And when the time came to sort of think about what my next steps were, I really felt a call to the Jewish social justice world. Um, in particular, you know, why highest? Um, my great-grandmother actually came to this country as what would have been considered a refugee had that category existed. She came to this country when she was 16 by herself at the turn of the 19th century, and she was fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe, like many of our families. And she lived in Brooklyn, not far actually from where I live today, and she worked in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Um, She was there when the fire broke out in 1911, but thankfully uh, she was able to exit the building out onto a fire escape. The fire escape broke off of the building, but her skirt caught on the building and it saved her life. And the summer passed. And for those of you at home, Jesse is currently making a very surprised face. This is quite an incredible story. A true story, though. (laughs) (laughs) So, so she survived. And um, in December of that year, she actually went on to give testimony at the trial of the factory owners through a Yiddish interpreter. And she... I've gone back into the test, the testimony from the trial. Uh, Cornell University has a large website that that sort of studies this this fire, and she says that she doesn't really understand the questions that are being asked of her, but she sort of describes where she was sitting, using her pocketbook and her hands. Um, and it was her testimony, along with the testimony of other women who survived at that trial, that gave rise to fire safety laws the way that we know them today. So why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because, of course. My great-grandmother was a refugee, but also she, to me, it is in sort of an odd way a story of welcome, that though she experienced this horrible thing and was certainly taken advantage of as a new immigrant, as a refugee, as a persecuted person, she was then welcomed by being given the assistance to stand up for those even more vulnerable than she and to testify at this trial. So it's sort of, it's a bittersweet story, um, and it shows the possibility that there is to welcome refugees. Um, and to really change their lives for the better. So I'm named for her. Her name was Rebecca Becky uh, Bursky Grant, and I'm named Rachel after her. And I really feel like my work at Hyas is as her namesake, as her legacy. So here at Hyas, I'm our director of education, uh, and I'm part of the community engagement team. So we're really together building a robust constituency of American Jews who are taking action for refugees. And I'm specifically focused on our educational materials, both on a hyper-local level and a national level. Um, and educating people about the refugee crisis. That's such a resonant story, I think, for so many people in this country. So many of us have parents or grandparents who are refugees. I think specifically within the Jewish community, people have stories similar, um, all very unique, but similar to that. Uh, And I also know that Hyas itself, and I would like for you to speak to this a little bit more, uh, originally was a organization designed for Jewish uh, immigrants to this country, um, and that has now shifted a little bit 
uh, to be a much more global and welcoming endeavor. Can you just talk about that shift? Sure. So HIAS was actually founded around the time that my great-grandmother came to this country. We were founded in 1881 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it is true. So we're now 136 years old. And for about the first 120 years, we really focused on Jewish refugees. Um, And we provided them with job assistance, job training, language acquisition, assistance, uh, food, housing, all of those things for about 120 years. Um, And Jews who were coming from all over the place, from Iran, from the former Soviet Union, from Cuba, Ethiopia, all the places that Jews have come to this country from. Uh, But in about 1980, really 1990, in the 1990s, the waves of Jewish immigrants to this country, Jewish refugees to this country slowed. Significantly enough that Hayes was really faced with a question, do we close our doors because there aren't a, a significant enough number of refugee, Jewish refugees coming to sustain our organization's work? Or do we take this expertise that we've gained over 120 years and apply it to those of any faith and any nationality? And we decided the latter. We felt like we had so much wisdom to bring to bear in refugee resettlement, and we were really going to continue to do that. And because at that point we were in a crisis of millions of refugees, there were certainly plenty of people to help. Um, And now, in fact, we find ourselves in the worst global refugee crisis in recorded history. We've even surpassed the crisis after World War II. So there's plenty to be done. And we feel like this is both work that we have experience in as a Jewish organization, but it's also, it's so it's Jewish history, but it's also our values. You know, our values in some ways are born out of our history. The Torah talks more than anything else that it talks about our about our obligation to the stranger, to welcome, love, protect. The Talmud says that the Torah says something about our obligation to the refugee 36 times. So it's more than any other value. Certainly, it's, it's a core value. And it, it's not even just a value. It's really an obligation. It's a mitzvah. It's a commandment. Um, and we feel like this work is essentially Jewish work, regardless of who we are helping. And to build off that, uh, I know that Hyas does work both directly in resettling refugees, working directly with those refugee communities, uh, and also works with large advocacy campaigns. So it's kind of a a twofold approach. Um, And I would love to hear from you kind of about some of those advocacy campaigns. And then we'll also talk about what you are doing specifically uh, to support immigrants and support refugees here. However, for a more broad approach, what are those advocacy tools that you are using currently? So I would actually say more than a two-part, more than looking at our work as two-part, it's actually four-part. So one part of our work, which I would say is uh, the largest part of our work and sometimes the least well-known, is actually our international work. So we have offices in 12 countries around the world. Um, Kenya, Uganda, Chad, Venezuela, Panama, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Israel, Vienna, Greece, and Ukraine, um, in addition to our office here in the United States. And in all of those offices, we're helping hundreds of thousands of refugees and asylum seekers. And mostly what we're helping them to do is to settle into what's called their countries of first asylum to really 
you know, make a life for themselves in the countries to which they flee. So that's actually a huge component of our work. Um, resettlement here in the United States is certainly a piece of it, and I'm happy to talk more about that later. Um, and then the advocacy actually happens hand in hand with the work that my department does, which is building out a constituency of American Jews who are taking action for refugees, and advocacy is a piece of how we do that. Um, so we have tons of different advocacy campaigns. Um, at the moment, in fact, just yesterday, last night, the president released um, a new set of guidelines about our resettlement program. So our latest act uh, advocacy action alert, if you go to www.highest.org, uh, forward slash take dash action. And I'm sure Jesse will post a link to that um, after the podcast. Um, if you go to that link, you'll find an action alert that essentially asks Congress to really take action to protect our United States refugee admissions program because the unnecessarily stringent uh, vetting processes that are being proposed um, are just draconian and are essentially going to result in a halt of this program. So we already know prior to the, the executive orders that were issued in June and in March and to this uh, set of guidelines, we already know that refugees are actually the most well-vetted group of entrants to the United States. Um, the Department of State, the Department of Defense, the National Counterterrorism uh, Center, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security are all involved in some way in refugee vetting. So we know that these measures are in place. And to put women and children over the age of 11 through extreme vetting measures is just simply unconscionable. To continue to ban all refugees from these 11 countries is additionally unconscionable. And it's really not about security, right? It's it's a way of dismantling the refugee program brick by brick, um, because we already know that those security measures are in place since 1980. Of the 3 million refugees that have been resettled here in the United States, not a single one of them has committed a terrorist act. So our current uh, action alert, our current advocacy campaign is really around asking Congress to take action, that if the presidential administration is going to take these measures to dismantle the program, Congress really has the, the power to ensure that it stays open and stays strong. So really simply, uh, because you brought it up, Donald Trump does say that these guidelines are in place, and he said it over and over and over again, because he wants to put America first. What is your response to that? So it's actually not putting America first. Um, on a very simple level, in fact, we believe that this is not good for national security, that when we do not help those who've helped us, so for instance, uh, those who fought with us in the Iraq War, uh, we, or in those from Iran, from Afghanistan, if we do not welcome them to our country, those people who put their lives at risk for us, we're putting ourselves at risk. Um, so it is really, it's not a good thing for national security uh, for us to not be welcoming refugees. And the, the threats to national security are just unfounded. They're not based in fact. And additionally, from a sort of practical economic perspective, refugees are actually great for our country. Um, we know that they open businesses. Most refugees find work within six months of getting here. Um, there was a really interesting study done actually in Ohio in 2012, and it found that refugees actually contributed um, to the economy 10 times their initial resettlement costs. So this study um, found that uh, 
the the boon to the economy generated by those refugees in 2012 weighed in at about 48 million when only 4.8 million had been spent on resettling them. So that's just one example. We know that over their lifetimes, most refugees pay far more in taxes uh, than money spent to resettle them. So really, they're a boon to our economy. And if you think about uh, some of the more famous refugees in our country, Albert Einstein, Regina Spector, we wouldn't have so much of the knowledge that we have, so much of the art and culture that we have were it not for refugees and their contributions. And in fact, we would not have one of the nine refugee resettlement agencies. The International Rescue Committee was founded by Albert Einstein, who is himself a refugee, was himself a refugee. There's a lot of people that you know, agree to this cause and are supporters of refugees. But they also echo the sentiment of, well, you can only welcome so many. You know, we can't just welcome every single person. Okay, I understand that they put it out of proportion in terms of, you know, the threat of refugees and that's not a real thing. But let's be honest, we can only welcome so many people. What's what's uh, What's your take on that? So one fun fact about me is that I used to, in college, I taught math during the summer. So I'm going to take my rabbi hat off and put my math teacher hat on and go to the numbers. So writ large, I'll say, highest, and actually the other eight refugee resettlement organizations absolutely agree that it is not uh, upon the United States to, by ourselves, solve the global refugee crisis. Why do we say that? Because at this moment, there are more than 65 million displaced people and refugees worldwide of those more than 65 million, just over 22 million, 22.3 million, have refugee status. So those are the two big numbers, 65 million, 22 million. Now the United States. Most recently, our biggest re resettlement numbers, our biggest uh, presidential determination, that would be the, the ceiling for refugee admissions in a, in a year, was set by President Obama at 110,000. And that's not the highest number that we've ever resettled. We used to resettle far, far more in the 1980s and 1990s. But in recent history, uh, for about the prior to the last two years, for the 15 years prior to that, we'd resettled around 70,000. And then President Obama raised it to 85,000, then to 100,000, then to 110,000. Even if we were still resettling 110,000, that would be half of 1% of all the people with refugee status worldwide. So hardly welcoming, let's say, to those who say we're, we're bringing everyone in, it would hardly be bringing everyone in. It would, in fact, be bringing half of a percent of all of the refugees worldwide in. And now, with the lowered presidential determination in September, President Trump lowered the presidential determination, the ceiling for refugee admissions, to 45,000, which is about 0.25%, uh, less than 0.25% of all the refugees worldwide. So we certainly are not uh, welcoming all the refugees in the world. We're welcoming a very small number. We certainly have capacity to welcome more. And most importantly, we have to, the United States really has to set an example for the other nations of the world because before we lowered the presidential, before the presidential determination was lowered, we were resettling more refugees than all of the other countries that officially resettle refugees through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees combined. Uh, so we clearly set the example. We are the leader. And it becomes much easier for other countries to look at the United States and say, we don't have to participate in this. If the United States, with all of its resources, is not participating at their capacity, why should we? You have an incredible network of people that you are able to reach right now. 
And I'm interested in regards to communities that are not necessarily connected to Hyas's work, to maybe lower SES uh, neighborhoods across the country, for them to be able to receive this information, for them to be able to overcome this false media that we're seeing so much of. And so to put it back on the advocacy actions that you guys are doing, I know earlier this month during uh, the, pa- the holiday of Sukkot, you set up a sukkah outside of Trump Tower and with Teruah. And I'm just interested in this was a one event of many that you've spoken at, that you have been a part of and are continuing to do further actions like this in the future. What what are these actions aimed at and how are you reaching an even larger audience? Sure. So the, the interesting part is our short-term goals are really the same as our long-term goals. Our goals as an organization are always to ensure that refugees across the globe have the protection and assistance that they need and that locally here in the United States, they are welcomed and they are protected, that those who are seeking uh, safety in the United States are able to get get that refuge that they need. And it's important to note that the refugees are co- who are coming here are the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. They are those who cannot safely be in the first countries they fled to. So these are really people whose lives are in incredible danger. I'll just say that, Rich Large. So it, it is our goal to protect them and to ensure that United States policy protects them and supports them and does not in any way try to um, limit their ability to come to this country other than as is appropriate. Uh, As I said earlier, we are not going to accept every single refugee who is in in search of refuge, but we need to do our part. Um, But we actually have a huge network of Jewish congregations all over the country who are part of something called the Highest Welcome Campaign. So that's 380 congregations that have signed on in support of refugees and are committed to taking action. So all 380 of those congregations are taking action in some way. And it looks really different all over the country. Including my home congregation, actually, which is very exciting. I found out uh, that they were involved uh, during Yom Kippur this year. Amazing. So that's a great example. One of the ways that some of the clergy are taking action, for instance, is to speak from the pulpit about refugee issues. Um, and that doesn't mean just to give sermons that uh, sing the praises of this, but really answer people's questions and and address their misunderstandings head on, and then acknowledge some of the fears and hesitations that people have, because those are natural. Uh, I like to, I often quote Rabbi Yael Splansky, who's a colleague in uh, Canada, who says that only a fool is fearless when threats of danger are real, but the hero is the one who acts in spite of their fear. And I think that's really important. I think it's under—it's important to understand what are the reasonable fears here? Uh, what kind of risk are we willing to take? Are we even really taking a risk? We would argue no, because again, refugees are so well vetted. And so we have an obligation to stand up and to do something. But that's one example of what synagogues could be doing. They might be doing advocacy. They might be doing lobbying. They might be hosting their own events, uh, like the one... Um, like the ones that we did in February after the first executive order, we had a National Day of Action for Refugees, and there were uh, about two dozen events all over the country uh, of people standing up for refugees in different ways, using ritual, uh, using rally, you know, rally chants, uh, speaking to really lift up their voices and say, we stand in support of refugees. So we encourage congregations, no matter where you are, uh, whether you have refugee resettlement happening right in your city or close to your city or town, we encourage you to join that welcome campaign and to say, we, we support this. Uh, that's one huge way that folks can help. And it sort of becomes a gateway uh, into many other ways of helping. And for 
individuals, there are lots of ways to get involved that I'm sure we'll we'll get into in a bit. And I'm just about to say, within two minutes of talking with you, like I don't need any convincing. I want to be there. I want to support as much as I can. I know congregations listening to this are going to want to support however they can. Individuals, everyone listening is going to want to be able to lend their support. What are the different ways from a base level to a high actionable level? Can people support the work of HIAS? So right now, I would say the most important thing that people can do is become advocates because we're really seeing uh, the politicization of this issue. Interestingly, the refugee issue, quote unquote, was a bipartisan issue until this last election cycle. And we want for it to be a bipartisan issue again. We want for refugee protection to be something that we can come together across political lines and agree this is there is a deep American legacy of welcoming and this is something we are committed to continuing to do. So Continue to call your Congress people. Continue as much as you can to try to contact the White House, even if you have a Congress person who is friendly and and is voting in positive ways on refugee issues, it's still important for us to call to say thank you and to put this issue on their radar. Because if they're not hearing from us, they'll start to think we don't care. Uh, so we have to continue to advocate, certainly to those who are uh, who have less friendly voting records on this issue, but also to those who have who have supported, who have taken risks even in their political careers uh, to support refugees and support pro-refugee policy. So that's one huge way. So that's sort of the political advocacy realm. And I also encourage folks to do personal advocacy. So to find there is someone in your life, everybody has someone in their life, uh, who has some questions about this issue or is downright opposed to refugees. So think about how to start a conversation there how to ask some questions to try to understand where they're coming from, to try to assess what is the the information that they need perhaps to confront some of the fears or misconceptions that they have, and to really work on being a re- an advocate for refugees in all areas of your life. When you came in, Jesse, I gave you a button that says my people were refugees too. It can be as simple as putting that button Anybody can get one of those buttons or a sticker, putting that button or a sticker on your laptop or on your backpack so that everywhere you go, people know that you are someone who supports refugees. When we first produced these buttons for Hyas, I was wearing one in a taxi cab in New York City, and I noticed that the driver kept sort of looking at me through the rear view uh, mirror, and I thought, well, that's a little odd, but you know, maybe I look nice today. And when we got to the destination, though, he turned around. And I realized he had tears in his eyes. And he looked at me and he said, where did you get that button? And I said, I explained where I worked and and where it was. And he just, he said, thank you. Obviously, I took it off and gave it to him. He was a refugee. And so it really changed his day to know that he had a passenger who was not just passively supportive of him, but really out front wearing a button that said this. And so I think we can send a message to refugees. We have to know that refugees in this country right now, even those who are already here, many of them have family who are not here. And these latest uh, um, revisions to the refugee admissions program uh, basically make family reunification impossible. So you're talking about people who are separated from their families, letting them know that they have a family in the the siblinghood of American citizenry, that we can be their family. That is a powerful action we can take. So advocacy is huge. Education is huge. We have tons of education materials that we're happy to share for holidays, for other events. You can get in touch for your community. Um, Volunteering is a great thing to do. You can go to our website, highest.org slash volunteer, uh, and sign up to see what local opportunities there are where you are uh, to do direct 
direct service with refugees. Um, and finally, philanthropy. It's really important that we continue to support the work that HIAS does, that other refugee resettlement agencies do, uh, so that we can continue to help our clients. So we encourage you to, when you give your tzedakah, give it to HIAS, give it to re refugee resettlement. And where can people go? Uh, just are there direct links you can send people to to learn more and how to get involved? Absolutely. If you go to highest.org, you'll see on our, our front page, there will be a link to a blog post that tells you the latest ways uh, to take action. And I'll share with Jesse an even more direct link to a blog that we constantly update with new, uh, new action items and ways for folks to take action. But if you get to highest.org, you will be able to find, uh, find your way there. I want to once again thank Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer for speaking with me today. Now, I encourage all listening to head to my Instagram page at The Newest Jewish, where you can find all the links and resources mentioned by Rabbi Meyer. It is such a pleasure speaking with listeners and being able to bring on guests such as Rabbi Meyer, who continue to defend our sisters and brothers from across the earth and provide the much-needed foliage in this political autumn. My name is Jesse Cerati. Please like, subscribe, share, or continue engaging with The Newest Jewish Podcast in any manner. Thank you for engaging with this Newest Jewish generation.